Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Challoner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Joining me on today's programme on a cloudy autumn day here in the capital is Dave Cleverly. Dave is the Managing Director at Intelligent Wood Systems, a firm specialised in advanced timber construction, which also offers a full suite of fire mitigation products for timber during construction. Um, Dave, very warm welcome to yourself today and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on the show. Thank you for inviting me on. It's a pleasure for us to welcome you onto the airwaves with us. Um, Now, COVID-19, of course, has been the dominant headline throughout 2020, and it's proven to be such a significant challenge for leaders within all walks of life. But for a business such as yourselves, to what extent has it affected things in terms of how it's disrupted the supply chain? Uh, It's been a major disruption for us. At at the time of what we call the shutdown, uh, we had a full order book. We had full production. So... It was full steam ahead, so to suddenly have to shut the gates for an undetermined period of time uh, was a problem for us to, to plan ahead. Um, we, we've utilised uh, the government furlough scheme, uh, which has enabled us to keep all the employees, and we, we, we found that instead of being our normal management team, well, we were in a position of sort of being reassuring patrons to, to everyone, to our staff and our customers. Um, we had to reassure people that they would have jobs. Then we had to then reassure them that their jobs would be safe when they when they came in, that we could follow guidelines. And we obviously had to reassure the customers that when they came back, we were able to cope with their demands. And just how was it sort of managing that from a mental health perspective and keeping people reassured? Because I can imagine that there might have had to be one or two sort of difficult conversations from quite a few anxious people. Uh, yeah, there, there are always going to be difficult conversations anyway, but also as a business, we're disability confident. Uh, we've won an award there. So mm. we, we have a, a varying range of uh, staff. So it wasn't a case of just telling the guys, you're going home, you'll be back in a few weeks. Uh, we had to reassure people. Um, we have some autistic people on board. We have a, a deaf gentleman. So we had different ways of communicating the same message. Um, but the biggest thing we had to do was just to reassure people that there will be a job waiting for you. We didn't know when we'd be allowed to have people back in. Um, and, and no matter how you deliver the news, uh, the recipient hears it in the way they want to hear it. So we mm-hmm. had to be very careful how we, we kept that message going. Um, our production manager kept in touch with all the staff during the period. Um, mainly to tell them or give them some idea when they were coming back, but to reassure them again that they were coming back. Then we had a, a phased return to work. So when we said we could open, um, not everybody wanted to come back at that time. There was people with young families who were a little, little bit unsure. So we had an initial phase of people coming back. Uh, there was a second phase when the people who were unsure um, we, we are able to show them the guidelines were being utilised in the yard. Uh, they were safe to come back. And then our third wave of people coming back were those that were at high risk. 
um, people who maybe had underlying issues. Um, so that, that, that was the challenge to keep everybody informed um, and, and keep them up to speed on what, what we were doing. That, that was the biggest challenge, just making them understand because no matter how we said it, they heard it in the way they wanted to hear it. Um, there's quite a lot of media coverage, so they were taking one opinion from the media and then they, they'd listen to us as, as, as business managers telling them how it will be. Um, so that, that, that was the biggest challenge, just communicating that to everyone. And I can imagine that maybe having to do so via remote means as well sort of makes it more difficult to kind of get that kind of nuanced message across, doesn't it? To try and phrase it in the right way, because albeit remote communication has been a blessing during this time, it isn't necessarily a one-size-fits-all approach either, is it? Oh, definitely not. Being in front of somebody is, is the best way. You, you, you can gauge their feelings, you can gauge their mood, and mm-hmm. um, maybe they're not getting the message completely and discuss it with them. Um, we, we, we lost that ability on, on a phone. You, you don't know what the recipient's thinking. Um, and, and the mental health issue is, is a big thing. You know, we didn't want to scare them. Um, the pandemic was scary in itself. Um, but <laughs> we didn't want to add to their wounds, but we, we had to deliver a harsh message. We're, we're shut for a period. We'll let you come back. Um, but then, as I said, our production manager did keep in touch because you didn't know if people were sitting at home fretting on the news. But if you're in front of them, you can judge their mood and you just mm. couldn't do that over the phone. So it was a challenge. I think you're absolutely right in that sometimes there is no replica for that face-to-face human contact i think we've taken that very much for granted pre-pandemic for sure and we're really starting to now see the effects of that um reflecting on your experience over the uh, the last few months in managing um, your way through this we are trying to sort of see some positives on the program as to what has been such a dark and dense cloud over all of us so is there anything positive that you can take from the last few months or maybe something that you feel you might have learned from this experience uh, lots of positives. The biggest positive is our industry did keep going um, in some form. It's now mm-hmm. back to speed now, and it's very, very busy. Um, but, but the government wants houses being built, and we've got an industry that wants to deliver them. So that's really positive. You know, the people that have opened their doors again are busy. We've got a trade association, the Structural Timber Association, who have been really good for our, our side of the industry. They delivered seminars on how to deal with the, the current situation, the best way to get your business back up and running. That's a positive. The industry is still there, and it, it's still very, very busy. Um, also, by mainly working from home, we, we've lost the spontaneity of being in front of people, maybe making handwritten notes. So a big positive is the fact that everybody's adopted the modern technology. Um, teams, European, and, um, um. sorry, teams, that's all been available, but, we tend to have not jumped on board so much, but we've been made to now. And that's a real positive that businesses can interact now. We can get people on a screen. We can share documents. And I think that's a new way forward. And we've been made to embrace it instead of waiting for it to happen. Mm. I think that's really positive. And everybody seems to be grateful to, to be back to work. Uh, it's uplifting to know that you're getting back to some sort of normal, be it a new normal. Um, I think that's very positive that people can take that. I've got my job, I'm back, and I'm pleased with it. Um, yeah, some people have had some tough times, but I mm. think there's plenty of positives there to say that our industry is still going. 
And of course, we talked about technology there. Um, sometimes, of course, technology cannot do everything. There are some industries such as yours where you have to have people coming into the workplace, at least in some capacity, and that is going to continue come what may. Um, but you mentioned, of course, technology is being used a lot more within the sector now. People are using it um, in increasing rates for meetings and things like that. So with regards to that side of things, is that something that you can see becoming a permanent part of the way that we do business in this country? Technology used more for those sorts of interactions? Oh, definitely. It's here to stay and no doubt it will be improved on as well. Um, The world has got a whole lot smaller. We've done a lot of um, trips to North America to try and develop the business there. Um, But now we don't necessarily have to jump on a plane to do that. As long as we hook Mm -hmm. up on the time zones, we'll get really good quality online uh, meetings. Um, that that technology will only get better, and I think it's invaluable, and it's a new way for everybody working. Uh, no doubt, an awful lot of the, the workforce, if it can, will work from home now. But they're just an extension of their satellites to their offices now because everything is so easily communicated. Um, instead of standing up in front of a room and putting up uh, slides on a on a projector, we, we can share our presentations. We can share notes. Um, it's not that face-to-face interaction in the old sense of the word, but it's a, it's a new way of doing that. And I think it's definitely here to stay, and it's a real positive. It's going to be interesting what the, the workplace of the future is going to look like because of technology, isn't it? Because there are mental health benefits on sort of both sides of the argument, both for working from home and also from going into the office or the workplace and having some interaction with other people as well. So what we could end up ultimately seeing is maybe a no more nine to five in the office, Monday to Friday sort of routine, but maybe two or two days a week working from home, two to three days a week working from the office and like I say, that could well be the way of things in the future now. Definitely. I, I agree with that. And we, we see it from two sides as well. Um, you have the office environment. So because we have a factory, we, we can move that. It is where it is. Um, mm. So that camaraderie to the, to, the, to the workforce is really important. As I said, with, with disability confidence, there's some guys there that feed off going back to work and being part of the team. They learn new skills and they interact. Um, definitely. So we, we see it from both sides. The office will be satellite environment. Will we maybe share time like you suggested, maybe two days remotely, three days in the office? But we can't change the factory. Um, and I think that's really important for those guys to, to get together and have that, that bonding time, that working time, plus the fact that they're right earning money. So that, that's good for their mental health as well. Mm, exactly right and of course that human interaction that culture as well that is very much everything and it's proven so instrumental for morale during this time which is so so important because the issue around mental health and well-being as we've talked about it already has been hugely amplified by all of this and thinking about how things may well change now over the course of the year the next year just before we do wrap things up on the uh, the program um in an ideal world where is it that you would like your business to be this time next year dave and what is it that you really want to have achieved do you think well for, for now we want our business to, to get over the current challenges all businesses shut down um, globally pretty much they all shut down so the, there's an issue at the moment for all industries um, supply and demand because everybody's come back to work full steam ahead there isn't stocks available because farther down the line the production of planks of timber uh, raw timber tree felling stocks so that, that's the start of the process. 
Uh, so we are seeing some challenges now on material shortages uh, throughout Europe. So as a business, we'd like to see us, uh, or I'd like to see us, tailor our offer slightly, get stronger, learn from the experiences, and continue our growth plan. And maybe, as we've mentioned, the, the technology that's available, continue our, our attempts to expand into other countries by using the online facilities. But we, we've learned a lot of lessons. We're far more organized now. And in a year's time, I want to see that we've continued our, our growth plans that we had before the COVID. We've managed to see season through and continue employing extra people as we are at the moment. I certainly hope that the business is able to sort of get back to where it was pre-pandemic and certainly be able to make those growth plans a reality day for sure. I do love that positivity because it is so, so infectious during this time. We could all use a dose of that to boost the morale. And in fact, just given how fantastic it's been having you join us on the uh, the program today to talk about how things have been getting on i actually think it would be wonderful to catch up at some point in this next year as well and have you back on the program with us just to see how things are coming along and how some of your plans are starting to bear fruit i would welcome that opportunity and we look forward to delivering all the positivity I'd really, really welcome that myself, Dave. I think it would be wonderful to catch up and I really hope that there will be some positive news to uh, to share at that point in time. It's good to get away from all of the doom and gloom of the current situation, that is for certain. And most importantly as well, until we do hopefully get an opportunity to speak again, please do take care and stay safe with all that's still going on because we're certainly not out of the woods with this yet. It is still an immediate and present danger, but let's hope that we're not going to be stuck in this rut for too much longer. That's very kind, thank you. And best wishes to all of your listeners and everybody stay safe and well. And as you said, we look forward to catching up with you in the future. I'd also like to reiterate that message to all tuning in today as well. Please do stay well, look after yourselves, and most importantly, be considerate of others as well, because it does make such a difference in saving lives during this time. Um, It was a pleasure for me to welcome Dave Cleverly, Managing Director at Intelligent Wood Systems, onto today's programme. Coming up next on the show today, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with former England cricket captain Sir Andrew Strauss. Um, During his playing career, Sir Andrew joined an illustrious club of just three England captains to have secured the Ashes both at home and away in Australia, as well as racking up the second highest number of test victories for an England skipper in history. Um, Since retiring from playing, Sir Andrew spent a period of time as Director of Cricket for the England and Wales Cricket Board and became a champion for mental health and charitable causes. I do hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan relished the opportunity to speak with Sir Andrew, and that will be coming up next. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year, so congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, Now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals, and on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dreskothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? (laughs) Um, Well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dreskothic who gave me that nickname, Ah. it was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, but blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mm. mo- at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place, 
and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully it didn't particularly <laughs> stick other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station because, of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you really got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career, full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then you know, I only got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to... See your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance. Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was mm. captain of Middlesex. All my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later, I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test match. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, I'm, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people, and this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business, um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness, they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day -day basis... My wife, Ruth, played a, a huge mm. role, you know, and just in terms of because I, I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it. And you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you, you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm -hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international it's cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, 
Um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure, no doubt, you were feeling? Yeah, well, the the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after. Because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, the, the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f- I think it was in the final day of the series and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Giles, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. You right. know, and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point you know, because there's so there were so many people back in two thousand five that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that i got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating you know i felt like i'd really arrived well as a done. celebrity yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night unfortunately but I, I did ask for a highlight and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored 100 in that fifth test yes. match under real pressure. And that, that was one that, you know, that, that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough, and privilege, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on, up to, and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um... Well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. You know, you're absolutely right. You know, I, I remember when I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th- there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually, the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th- suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, w- that was a big part of it. 
for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership, I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. And it's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those uh, situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be players when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there, there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment. And uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to, tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they, they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. Uh, and so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda. And, you know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a wing question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them? And that you couldn't really do without it. Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so. Yes. Okay. Uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many. Um, because they they'll know your heart's in the right place, and they uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be that degree of sort of psychological safety or some or whatever it might you might term to to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter you know how gregarious and and how um, impressive you might be as a person they will be wary of you mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly um now in 2015 obviously you were appointed as director of the ecb uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on um you brought in trevor bayliss as coach was what was brought in um you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket now in the abstract what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Holy Soil in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the 
all right mm. on the night and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. Yeah. And the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in in terms of players' focus and interest. Yes. Um, and we had to move... With, in fact, we didn't have to move at times. We need to get ahead of the time. <laughs> so, you know, we had to completely shift out both our philosophy, but also the way we played in order to do that. Um, and I was very lucky... Uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what did the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it, a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground, right. and so you know you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves. Mm. And often, you know, in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off, and uh, I don't know about you, but when watching that World Cup final again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired. Another generation of, uh, especially school kids who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt. No, how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I. Yeah. Actually, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Um, now, in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become. An inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you do explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through and so after she died in December uh, 2018 uh, I came back and launched the foundation with two f focuses number one to 
fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women, young women, that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers... It's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare. It's probably a misnomer. But it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis, to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if it, you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death even though we're all going to experience it in one shape way shape or form and um you know we i think as a society we need to be better than that we, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health and we can do better about death there's no doubt about it well i think it's a, it, the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken um uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the uh, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams, so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again, so that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary! Was it fifteenth of April? Wasn't it? What an extraordinary day, and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway, yes. and then f for us to have that extra element of the the Red for Ruth Day and to see the the wave of support you know it's probably it was just i myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way you know we felt so much uh, love and support there and then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised and um we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing not just the the day at lords um i even saw some of the stuffiest members of the mcc andrew wearing red uh, wearing red so what what an extraordinary thing yeah well a lot um, of them <laughs> wear red trousers they, anyway no, i think but um absolutely. no it, absolutely you know they, they were right behind us and um you know we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the english summer uh, just like the mcgrath foundation days yes. in, in sydney and australia well it's been a complete inspiration um and uh, i very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well absolutely. um before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. And I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown um, 
that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world, we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game. So we need to find another way of doing that. Um, I, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but... In two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and will be moving towards the IPL. And those are, you know, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As, a, as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to... I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I'm, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's got to be the Lords one, right? That sh sh of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanjay, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.